thank you, Jerry and Jeremy. Always such a joy, I pray, in your soul to sing together and come together and be reminded of our existence and our future and our hope. So let's turn our attention now, beloved, to God's Word. God's Word, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 22. We return to our study in the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 22. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome. And you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the rack in front of you. You will see one there. You can use that. Follow along in it. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 22nd chapter. Well, I want to set the table for you. We will be in this particular passage of Scripture for at least another week after this one. But there's a term that really hangs over it and through it, and it is so predominant today. And it's the term, you've heard it called social justice. Social justice is a term that you have heard, as I just mentioned, and especially lately it has gained so much traction over the past couple of years. And it's a term, social justice, and I think if you track with me this morning, you'd agree it sounds good. Just to say it sounds good, does it not? Social justice, many would say, without knowing it, I'm all for that. It sounds like a very noble endeavor. Yet if I was to ask you to define it, think about that, if I asked you to define it for me, you might find yourself with a struggle this morning, you might. What does the term social justice mean? We hear it so often. What does the term mean? It is used liberally, regularly, frequently today, but it means what? What are we talking about with that term? Old Testament scholar John Goldenay is on point when he says this. I quote him, The notion of social justice is a hazy one. It resembles words, words whose meaning may seem self-evident and which we assume are obviously biblical categories when actually they are rather undefined and culturally relative. Over the years, social justice has become a buzz expression, end quote. Westman, that really captures it. It really does. That's helpful. Social justice, again, sounds good, and especially when you think about the haziness, the fuzziness of the words. You know them. Equality. Oppression. Opportunity. Unity. Diversity. How are those not good words in one sense? In one sense. All the buzzwords of today. And I trust in one sense that you recognize There are dimensions of those words that our God is in. God is in. Our God, more than a God of social justice, our God is a God of what? Justice. Justice, period. God is a God of justice, and the Bible declares it. No, the the Bible proclaims it throughout Genesis to Revelation. Our God is a God of justice. Listen, social justice personal or otherwise. God is a God of justice, period. But saying that, I want you to just consider, again, as we set the table this morning for this passage in the law, I want you to just consider some very common current questions as we introduce 
this theme today. I just want you to think about these. I just lay a few. There's so many I could have given you to start. But beloved, I just want you to think about these. Number one, does the Bible use those words that we just said in the same way you hear those words used? Do you know what I mean? Is the Bible using those words you hear today in the same way you hear them used? Does the Bible in theory and practice offer us social justice solutions that we see today? Let me give you an example or two. So number one, does the Bible teach that true justice is defunding a police force and giving partiality to criminals? Is that what the Bible's teaching? Does the Bible teach that ultimate oppression is a matter of race and privilege? And note that. Social justice would say, ultimately, matters of oppression come down to race and privilege. Does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible teach that we should show favor to those with more intersections? And you're saying, what does that mean? That's intersectionality. That is a very academic, philosophical, ivory tower word today. simply means Everyone has intersections, and by that we mean social identities. So you are a confluence, a convergence of many intersections, minority, gender, class, and it goes on and on and on and on. Almost any degree of your experience would map to an intersection. There's all kinds of sociology around that. Does the Bible teach that we need to give an apology for the sins of our ancestors? Does the Bible teach that? I mean, I think that's something we need to think about for a moment, because you'll hear that a lot today. But does the Bible say we need to apologize for generations gone by? Does the Bible teach that we put extra efforts into making sure, and note it, this is the call today, we put extra efforts into ensuring that everyone feels equal? And if so, I would ask you this, how do you measure that? And where does it end? In fact, biblically, when you think about that, does the Bible actually teach that equality is a virtue, socially? Is social equality God's end game? Is the striving in the Bible that we are all socially equal? Those are just some of the questions in the realm of social justice today. I pray that's helpful. And you recognize, yeah, I've heard a lot of that today. That's what I'm hearing today. And beloved, I ask you to consider those questions in light of God's word this morning. I simply want you to take those and your own questions around social justice, and I want you to bring them to the word of God this morning. Let's just bring them to the word of God. We will look at a passage that directly addresses issues of social justice. In fact, most of you look down at your Bible, you probably have a copy of God's word that has a subheading that says something like this, laws about social justice. Those, of course, are uninspired, by the way, but it's helpful. No subheadings here are helpful because that's precisely what we're going to look at. Now, the full passage that we're looking at today and certainly next week, it flows right in. Again, look at your Bible, chapter 23, verse 9. That's an extended passage. We're starting in verse 16 today, and it's going to go right into chapter 23, verse 9. Of course, of course, we're not going to get to all of that today. Certainly ambitious, but it is very important. This is why we love studying the Word of God verse by verse. We're going to hit at things that are very contemporary to what you're dealing with today. So we do. We just follow the Word where it takes us, and we drill in. Every Word of God inspired. 
So let's try, though, and grab the first part of this section. Look now, beginning in verse 16. Look at it with me. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he should give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we look at those words, this text, and so many questions are maybe aroused in our soul as we think through what you're teaching us. God, we pray we would hear from you alone. Help us to understand your law. Help us to receive it. Help us to apply it. And go forth later, Lord, living out your word to your glory, we pray. Amen. Remember, we are now fully immersed into the finer details of case law. By case laws, remember, we mean actual circumstances. This is degrees of specificity now that Israel would encounter in that time in the ancient Near East. And we're looking at specific cases that communicate, here it is, overarching justice. These specific laws are communicating overarching justice. Remember, many of these cases, we've seen this already, flow right out of the overarching ten words. Do you remember those? The ten commandments. The law principles. These are really what flow, the tributaries flowing from the ten words. And we'll see this again today in the law. And along with that, something else we continue to see. We must note this, especially in this portion of the law. This is what else we are going to see today. We're going to see God. We're going to see God, his character, his character revealed and reflected in his law. His attributes manifest by this law. And that will be no more vivid than today and over the next week or two. In these laws pertaining to social justice, we see God. And that's helpful because in the haze of modern social justice movements and messaging, one wonders when we think about the law in front of us and yet the law of the land, one wonders what is important here with social justice. That should be your question this morning. What are we talking about with social justice? This should be your question. What are we striving for? I recognize something's wrong, but what are we striving for? You might even ask this, what really matters with justice? What matters? Well, God will show us in his law here today. As always, we just simply, Westmount, need to look close. That's what we're going to do today. We're just going to look close at the text. To do so, we'll focus in as the text does. Again, we're going to just follow it tightly on the various plights of society. We're going to see a few States, a few plights, if you will, a few branches of society. First, this is our first point. We're going to see justice for the maiden. Justice for the maiden. Look again at verse 16. 
If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. The case here, and again, we've been looking at many cases, have we not? The case here involves a virgin, which is, which is a young lady or a maiden, as the King James Version has it, and that's good, a, a young maiden. And what are we saying by a virgin, a maiden? A girl of marriageable age. A girl of marriageable age, but not yet pledged in marriage. Do you see that? She's of marriageable age, she's ready, but she's not yet pledged. In fact, the word you see there is betrothed. That would be akin to our engagement process today, but listen, in the ancient Near East, the betrothal process had much more authority and force. It was like a legal contract. So it was nothing soft or loose about engagement. It was a firm arrangement. Basically, in the ancient Near East, they treated that couple almost, not quite, almost as if they were already married. So you can see the force here. Hence, when you look at this young virgin, again, remember, virgin is ready. She's ready to be married, but she's not. She's mature, but she's not yet pledged to another man. So this maiden, in this case, though, in her readiness, is seduced by a man. She's not pledged to a man, but she's seduced by a man. And that means that he lies sexually with her. Now, that scenario would elicit all manner of modern commentary today, right? We recognize that. But let's just stick to the text. This is where the word of God, if we don't deviate from the text and other passages, is very insightful. And I want to show you this. Let's make a few important observations. When you come to a text like this where you say, what is going on? And your injustice radar flies up. Number one, let's say this, and I want to show you this. This is not rape. This is not rape. The word seduction communicates this. And you say, well, how is that? Well, let's turn to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. Keep your finger in Exodus. We'll be in Deuteronomy a few times, so you probably want to put something there. I want you to hear another portion of the law where rape is described, and I think you'll be able to see the difference quite clearly. Deuteronomy 22, verse 25. Listen to this case law and note the difference. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Do you see the word there? That is seizing a woman in the open country. This is a very graphic word. However, here back in Exodus, and you can turn back there for a moment, this is seducing a woman. There, if you notice in Deuteronomy 22, remember the end of that, it said, he shall die. It's so serious That is, rape warrants death. Here, seduction, which we would say it this way, is strongly persuading this young lady. But note this. In this case, it may be a different penalty, not death, but note this very carefully. It is a transgression that warrants a penalty under the law. Do you see that? This is a transgression. And let's not miss this. As we get out our scalpel on God's word, this is a transgression. It's not rape, but it is an offense. And this brings us to our second point. It is an offense under the law of God. 
Such seduction by this man is a wrong. Now hear me, the modern social justice movement blurs the lines completely here, but I want you to see in your God-breathed word, God does not. You see that? God does not blur the lines. Again, to be clear, both seizing and seduction are wrong under the law of God, but the crime of seduction here understands those circumstances are different. Remember the principle of what? Have we been learning in the law? Eye for an eye. The punishment fits the crime. No different here. And that brings us to our final observation. Number three, God vindicates the maiden. God vindicates the maiden. God's law says here, look at it, a bride price must be paid. You see that in verse 16. A bride price must be paid. In other words, make it right, offender. Make it right. You committed an act of marriage here. You lay with this young maiden. That is an act reserved just for marriage, Genesis 2.24. You did that, an act reserved for a married couple alone, so you then fulfill the duties that go along with the process of marriage. You see that? Do the right thing. And at that time... The right thing would have been the payment of a bride price. Some cultures still today have this. You know it as a dowry-like payment. Now, let's be clear here. Again, this is where it's good as we study God's word to know historical context as well. The bride price was part of the betrothal process. Part of being engaged, or remember more strongly, betrothed, a young man, if he was going to do that, he would pay a dowry payment to the family, to the father. It was a legal act contractual to say we now are in this arrangement together but here's where you have to be careful the bride price was not paid to purchase a person as if they were property that's not what's going on here ancient near east as you read about is very clear this is not what's going on no instead it was given as compensation note this for the loss of the daughter's help in the home do you remember the home economics of the ancient near east Every set of hands is valuable. Every set of hands. And when the young man comes and he has his bride and she is now out of the home, there is a loss of the home economics that's replenished in the law of God. So here God says, you have acted as if you're married. You put the cart before the horse. You lay with her and you did none of these other things by way of betrothal. Well, now fulfill that act. You've looked to consummate the act, initiate, fulfill the act at the very beginning with the bride price. In verse 17, by the way, we see a case set beside this where the father of the virgin, and I think many of you are thinking this, refuses. And fathers, you can understand why. Maybe the father says, I'm not sure I want him marrying my daughter, right? I don't know if this is the guy. He seduced My daughter, I don't know if I want him. Fair enough. Well, in this case, the wrong is still righted. Look at the justice of God. The bride price is still given. You did this, and we'll talk about what that compensation is for in a moment. The daughter remains at home, still in service to the family, but now with a price. The bride price still given, but it reflects something very different now because they won't be wed. Because that price reflects the very personal price that was inflicted on the young maiden. And this is where our modern sensibilities don't understand this. So let's help each other understand this. 
Her marriage readiness, I want to be very careful as I say this, her marriage purity, her marriage I am giving my body to you, and it's been touched by no one else, is gone. Unlike today, we have no category today for that. Everything is just passed off in the realm of flesh and feeling. Let us be crystal clear in God's word. The marriage union is the only place for the sexual act between husband and wife. That's it. And there is a bride price that is paid when it is violated here. I hope that's clear. God is a God of justice. And I want you to see, in the ancient Near East, save Yahweh takes this very seriously. Beloved, I think it's fair to say we don't, right? We don't. Sexuality has just been trampled on today. Consider these cases then in light of the modern social justice sensibilities. Now grab a hold of this please together. God doesn't say, young maiden, hire a good lawyer, win a court case, tell a story, write a book. Is that what God does? No, because that's not just. The young lady doesn't want any of those things. She wants security under Yahweh. She wants to be protected under him. God's justice, listen to me, is more than a legal victory and a really superpowered legal team. God's justice is far more lasting and substantial and real than that. God is concerned with protecting the young lady far after the transgression. Do you see that? Either in marriage or back under her father's protection. That's God. The cries are heard. The cries are heard of justice. Not justice for the maiden, but that's just one. We continue with our next. Justice for the wicked. Justice for the wicked. It's the next few verses, and you see them so starkly. 18, 19, 20. Look at them. They demonstrate the most vile of behaviors. Maybe you caught that as I was reading them. This is the most vile of behaviors we're about to read. And as such, the appropriate justice for each. And again, God cannot be clearer. Let's look one by one. Look at verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. That's it. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. A sorceress, or again, if you're reading from King James, a witch, needs little explanation, right? This is one who is engaged with, at a high level, at a spiritual level, the powers of darkness. This is vile wickedness because this is the pursuit of supernatural insight and power. This is seeking out that which is, note this, God's domain alone. So you're not only seeking out what's God's alone, but you're seeking it out in the darkest anti-God of places. Do you see that? You're seeking out anti-God in darkness. And to be clear, this darkness is real. I want to be clear about this, as some have asked recently, even recently, as of last week, the demonic realm is clear and it is present, beloved. Can I say that to you? It's real. And it's very, very present. Yes, especially today, Ephesians 6. The Bible is equally as clear on how God feels about, note this, engaging and dabbling in it. 
And I want us to grab a hold of this because you hear this a lot with the dark things. Some of the more overt dark things, I think, yeah, yeah, I would never do that. But you'll hear comments like this, but what's wrong with a little bit of that? I'm still under the sovereignty of God, and God knows it's, I've heard this, innocent. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, this time, we'll go to chapter 18. Again, we're just going to a different part of the law to see how clear God is about this. Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. This other case says this, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Can we just pause for a moment there and note that? You are my people, God says. You're going into a land that is very anti-God. See Canaan. I might suggest you like today. You're going into that land. Don't let any fish hook in your mouth with those abominable practices. Verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, list them, he is saying, they listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. That's pretty clear. So is Leviticus 19.26. Same principles affirmed. Note it. Leviticus 19.26. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Or what of the next chapter? Here's another one. Leviticus 20, verse 27. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer, dealing with the dead, shall surely be put to death. That's emphatic in the Hebrew. That this is what they deserve. They shall be put to death. Dabbling in that. Church, this is not just an Old Testament case prohibition, by the way. I want you to hear the New Testament. Just consider the New Testament. You know Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. And what about the magician Bar-Jesus in Acts 13? Both condemned. By the way, Bar-Jesus in Acts 13, what did Paul call him? Paul called him the son of the devil. Acts 13.10. Christian, I ask you, could God's word be clearer on how he feels about this? Is there anything innocent about dabbling with these things? The God-fearer does not seek fortunes, or here it is, this is more comfortable for us, future insights, wanting to know the future apart from God's word. Could just be a little innocent thing, I just, I know she has insights, and I just want to seek that apart from God's word. Listen, what are we saying very clearly here then? Anything claiming future insights into that realm. Yes, horoscopes. Yes, horoscopes are wrong and an abomination before God. And this should hardly need to be said today, but you hear it in the church. Crystal balls, Ouija boards, tarot cards, and yes, fortune tellers. There's nothing innocent about a fortune teller. Even if you think it's gimmicky, don't do it. It's an abomination. And it's right here in the law, multiple times. The God-fearer does not, and here's another one, and you note it in Deuteronomy, the God-fearer does not cling to charms, lucky or otherwise. That's not the economy of the Christian. 
My hope is placed in this rabbit's foot or this little troll. That's not the economy of the Christian. So yes, even the superstitious piece of clothing is wrong. Because I hear so often people say, I need to put on this tie or this socks and things will go okay. That's wrong. It's a charm. And listen, this is serious stuff in the Word of God. I I pray it's received. This is serious. If you cling to it in the belief that said thing brings you fortune, it's wrong in God's sight. Church, contrary to modern accommodations, and there's many, sadly in the church, there is no middle ground here. It's either good and of God and His Word, Direction and rightness and security, or it is not. Everything else, seeking future insights, charm and superstition is wrong. Sorcery, witchcraft, fortune-telling, charms, all of things like these is wrong. Why? Well, for one, they're wicked and ungodly. I want you to listen again. Just note this. Just hear the force again in Deuteronomy 18. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Not to mention Exodus 22, verse 18 You shall not permit a sorceress to live. I mean, that's enough force. Warning death. Secondly, and this is it, it's wrong because of the Word of God and the Son of God. What do you have, Christian? What do you have that you seek those things? We need no future insights. Only the promises of God come what may. He will never leave us or forsake us. His Word is clear. Joshua 1, Hebrews 13. And we certainly, beloved, need no charms. Christian, why? We have Christ. Ephesians 1.3 tells us, when you talk about a charmed life, blessing, Ephesians 1.3 tells us that God the Father has blessed us in God the Son, Christ, with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brother, sister, what are we seeking beyond that? What are we seeking? Our warning this morning is that the dark dabbler deserves death, according to God's word. I told you there was all manner of utter evil here, and it continues in verse 19. Look at it. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Maybe this is not so shocking to you. Maybe you're not so shocked to hear that ancient cultures, I'll give you one like the Hittites, actually had laws around what animals to lie with. That's in their law code. Yahweh's code is crystal clear. Person, animal, abomination. The Hittites, pagan codes say, well, let's regulate that. Let's regulate that. Maybe that's not so shocking to you. And maybe not so shocking to you is that this practice known as bestiality is still practiced to this day. Maybe that's not so shocking to you. By the way, this is not a one-time law to show you the force of this. The principle of bestiality, which is not lying with animals, is repeated in three other places of the law. Two times in Leviticus, chapter 18, chapter 20, which, by the way, says it warrants death. And not surprisingly, it's included with the list of curses. You know the list of curses? Deuteronomy 27, verse 21. In fact, very clearly in the list of curses, it says this and noted, that is a practice of the nations. That's what they do, but that's not what you do, child of God. It's not what you do. It needs to be said, by the way, that the, this is where doctrine is so helpful. I remember really wrestling with some of these dark things years ago until I understood the doctrine of man's depravity. 
the things that men and women are capable of doing apart from God. They know no bounds. They know absolute no bounds. That's why doctrine is important. There is a lot of evil in everyone, not a little good. Praise God for Jesus Christ, who we'll come back to. Yes, our wickedness knows no bounds, and yes, we need law, by the way, to show us that. Romans 5, Romans 7, without law, in some senses, how would we know the other depths? The trio of wickedness is rounded out in verse 20. Let's look at it. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You look at that there, that's an extension of the second commandment, of course. Remember it in Exodus 20, verse 4. Remember it said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and worship it. That's a prohibition, the second word, second commandment, against idol worship. The offering, just like the one here in verse 20, the sacrifice to any other god, any idol, any false god, other than the one true God, God alone, Yahweh. As we said back with our study of the ten words, and still is on point and clear here, the worship to anyone or anything other than God is nothing short of wickedness. And so that the severity of that wickedness is clear. Note the penalty, end of verse 20. How severe is this? Verse 20 says they need to be devoted to destruction. That is death and more, by the way. It's not just shall be put to death. They shall be destroyed. So sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, all utterly wicked, all receiving justice here. That is justice for the wicked. We continue with our next section. We've looked at justice for the maiden, the wicked, and now for the disadvantaged disadvantaged. God's law now turns to consider the plight of three specific peoples here. These groups, similar in the fact of this, like, let's understand this about these three groups. Similar in the fact that some aspect of their lived out humanity, of their circumstance at the time, whatever it is, has them in a less advantageous situation than the societal norm. Does that make sense? Whatever's going on in their life, they're disadvantaged as compared to the norm. And what do we mean by that? Well, there's the sojourner. The sojourner is the one in the land, but he's not native to the land. We'll come back to that. There's the widow. The widow simply does not have the provision and protection of her husband. She's disadvantaged. There's the orphan, clearly disadvantaged without the provision and protection of who? Parents. Now, before we explore what God's word has to say about each of these, I want you to consider what social justice today has to say about these. Yes, social justice today has an awful lot to say with respect to the disadvantaged. Is that not true? You hear that all the time, the disadvantaged among us. And there's much more I could say about it, but in particularly, it's germane to this text. We would say this, what is particularly noteworthy here is that the groups that social justice claim today, and here it is, are not necessarily the groups the Bible claim are disadvantaged. We don't just have this text to demonstrate that. There's many others. Now, I'm not going to get into all different manner of groups and stripes or intersections. That's not here. But what we do need to note here, though, and this is very important, is the tangibility, the reality of God identifying the disadvantaged. Do you see that? 
And what do we mean by that? We don't need special classes or training to understand how these three groups are disadvantaged, right? We don't need a seminar. We don't need a special coach to tell us how disadvantaged these people are because it's so self-evident. They're disadvantaged. A widow is clearly a widow. An orphan is not self-identifying as an orphan. He's an orphan. Very clearly. These are clear, physically discernible circumstances of disadvantages. And when that is clear, as we'll see, God has something to say about their plight. Listen to me. When there is injustice and disadvantage, mark it of Yahweh. He has something to say about that. It may not sit well with you, but it certainly doesn't sit well with Yahweh. He's in it. Consider verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Get that back in our mind, the context of Exodus. How long ago does it seem we were in Egypt, right? We're so far, that's so far upstream. So much has happened since those Egyptian days. But Israel, the same group of God's people here in Exodus, were in Egypt once, and God reminds them of that here. They were Hebrews, natives to the promised land, native to the land of God, but they were in a foreign land, Egypt. You see that? They were sojourners in a foreign land. The sojourner, in some senses, you talk about disadvantage, it's like a fish out of water. In a former life, I did a lot of traveling, and I remember being in inner Italy and inner Germany, and let me tell you something. I don't know any German in Italian. I was a fish out of water. In fact, I almost got myself killed in one of those situations because I didn't know the language. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the culture. That's a disadvantaged situation to be in the land but not of the land. Do you see that? Very clear. God says to Israel in Egypt, that's nothing like your land. Now, can you start to see the problem when we try to make that our land? Right? You see the problems we get ourselves into. You're not of that land. And what can exasperate that foreign situation is oppression. Again, like Egypt, so you're not just foreigners, you're oppressed foreigners. And God says here, Israel, you remember your experience. And listen, and Yahweh says it wasn't just. It wasn't a just experience. Remember, you cried out for deliverance because of the injustice. To be free from this foreign leader's oppression, you cried out to me. And Yahweh reminds his people what? You cried out to me and what? I heard you, Exodus 2. I heard you. I heard those cries. Do you see that? Is God in the business of justice? He hears those cries. I heard them, Yahweh says. I freed you, and I freed you to serve me, to be free to obey me and to worship me. But along with that, and implied clearly here, is that I delivered you. And why? Because it was unjust. And Yahweh is a God of justice. Listen, a God of wrong made right. That's your God. Isn't that great hope? He's a God of wrong made right. Maybe not on our time, but on his time. Wrong made right. This posture toward the sojourner, by the way, is repeated often in the law. Look at chapter 23, verse 9, almost repeated verbatim. You almost have the same law. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Almost word for word. Deuteronomy 10, 19, the law is stated, by the way, positively. Yahweh says, love the sojourner. Love them. That's God. 
In Leviticus 19, amid a series of very serious laws on how God's people are to treat each other, listen to Leviticus 19, verse 33. Yahweh says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Protect the sojourner. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Treat him as a native, and you shall love him as yourself. For, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Again, I want you to note in that text in Leviticus and here too, the character of your God. He's in this, very much there. The character of God defining the law, underpinning the law, the whole spine and scaffolding of the law is God's character. And here is love for the sojourner. Treat this sojourner as if he was a native. Love him as yourself. Now, this is important as well. Let's just consider this for a moment. God says, don't mistreat. God says, love them like yourself. That's who God is, and that is what we're called to do, to be in light of social justice, which, by the way, is real. In a social level, there is injustice, so God calls for social justice. However, and don't miss this crucial point, because social justice today will miss this. True justice, true biblical justice, is about righting a clear and obvious wrong. True justice says, you mistreat a foreigner, and that's sin, and that's wrong. That's what God says. True justice says, you love them. In other words, you wouldn't treat them that way. If there's a foreigner among you, you love them as if they're natives in the land. But it would be a perversion of justice to get carried away and take God's law to somewhere where it was never designed to be, nor makes sense to be. What do we mean by that? I mean it would be causing another wrong to then turn around and show partiality. Is that not true? If you just take it to some uber level and say, well, now I'm going to be partial to you. To then give preferential treatment to the sojourner because of a past wrong. Now we are going to see this principle again, and it's so on point to what's going on today. And by the mercy and grace of God, it comes up again in chapter 23. We're going to see this, particularly in verse 3, in technicolor. But for now, we're just going to note it, and we'll be there, God willing, next week. And this principle, by the way, you say, why... Is this a thing? Well, it is on vogue today for leaders to say something like this. Whether it's the CEO or the political leader, they, they're looking to chart a course before they know anything about anyone, and they make declarations like this. On my watch, half of my group, half of my team will be minority or gender or disadvantaged. That's what I'm going to do. Right out of the gate. Don't know anyone, but that's what I'm going to do. And it sounds so good. Sounds so righteous. But listen, it may be trendy social justice to say that, but I want you, especially if you're bristling at that, I want you to consider with me it's actually a perversion of justice, and I'll tell you why. It may sound good to say I'm going to have more minorities, half of them are going to be this, that, and the other. True justice would say what of the individual to fill any post? What of the most qualified individual? Qualification must, in excellency under Yahweh, transcend any of the packaging. It's the way it is with God. Regardless of ethnicity or gender, true justice says, who can do the job? Who's the most qualified? That's justice. 
Yahweh says. Again, we're going to see this next week. Now, God's justice rights the wrong, period. God's justice doesn't create another injustice. Do you see that? God's justice rights the wrong. God's justice, here it is, beloved. This is your God. God's justice is concerned with this. The wrong not happening again. That's the God you serve. So that it doesn't happen again, here's the course correction to make society right. This is God's concern. So God reminds Israel here of their treatment in Egypt and their oppression. They were disadvantaged in Egypt and it was wrong. So Israel, look, you don't turn around when you get into that land and do the same thing. And when you have foreigners in your midst, you don't do the same thing. That's why we have Rahab and and Ruth. Now hold on to that true justice as we consider the next groups here in verse 22. You see a couple of other destitute groups. Look at verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That is, again, so clear. The widow, the orphan, God always cares for those that lose their primary care. Do you see that? God is especially here. And how much is God concerned with injustice against the widow and the orphan? How much? Look at verse 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You see the principle there again. It pops up an eye for an eye principle. Note the vengeance that comes against the one mistreating the widow and orphan. You mistreat the widow, you mistreat the orphan and God's wrath will burn and you offender you will make your wives a widow and your children orphans. Eye for an eye. In other words, by the sword, verse 24, such mistreatment deserves death. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, God actually curses those that pervert the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. He actually curses them. Same groups, by the way, the psalmist calls on to be vindicated in Psalm 94, 6. In Isaiah 1, and you can note this, as God calls Israel to repent of their wickedness, he gives a lot of calls, a lot of comes there. He demands this, Isaiah 1, 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. If you were to go 10 chapters over to chapter 10, you'd hear this, Isaiah 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. And here it is, listen. What does it look like? To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of the right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. We could add so many more, but of course we need to mention that this doesn't go away in the New Testament. This is not just a call of Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is the cry of the triune God for all time. Consider the New Testament, James 1, 27, the verse just before the one Dave read for us this morning. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And along with that, let me read you our text one last time that we understand this. Verse 22, Exodus 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. 
If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. As you consider all of those texts, and maybe you're thinking of even more of the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, in light of these texts and many others, I ask you, does God care about the disadvantaged? Is God in that? Does he want justice for the disadvantaged? Is he concerned? Does he see their plight and demand justice? The answer is obvious. God surely hears those cries. And he moves. And he meets. And here we need to note this as we close. He meets and moves at a level that modern social justice could never, ever execute. This is our application. And that's right. Horizontal social justice, if you will, today is incapable It's incapable of meeting the true injustice. That's the illusion. It's incapable of meeting it. Lots of bells and whistles. Lots of words. Lots of haze. But it cannot meet the true justice. Because so often, here it is, it misses the God of justice. That's what the movement does. It's looking to erect its own standard of correction in its own law. Is that not true today? Its own standard of righteousness apart from the God of righteousness and the God of law. Not only the one who is the arbiter and definer of what is truly good and right, but the only one that can actually enforce it. Is that not true? Yahweh. This is why social justice by the modern stripe today is so off the mark. It's looking to execute justice in the wrong places, often for the wrong reasons. And as it's been so often said of social justice, it just misses the gospel period. The gospel, listen, beloved, is greater than ethnicity. It's greater than gender, neighborhood, or anything else. Forget strata. Forget economic class. It's above all strata, above all classes. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is what truly, listen, the gospel and only the gospel is the only thing that can truly unite the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. The gospel is the only guarantee of this as stated so eloquently in Galatians 3.28. Hear this text anew. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in who? Christ Jesus. Yes, Westmount, the gospel is the love of God on his humanity. The love of God, here it is. The gospel is this. The love of God poured out on the disadvantaged. On those, and here is the rub, poured out on those not suffering injustice. Those facing exactly what they deserve. That's the gospel. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. The true disadvantaged, which really are all of us, There is absolutely nothing we can bring into the heavenlies that will get us to heaven of our own righteousness and our own blood and our own work. We are, of all peoples, the only peoples, so disadvantaged before a holy God. And I feel like I can't say this with enough force after a message like this. 
Are you not thankful for the justice of God in Christ? Are you not? You are disadvantaged and there's nothing you can do, Christian. Nothing you can do. Save, throw everything out the window, all your own way, repent of it all, and say, God, I'm done with trying to meet these false standards and I place everything in Jesus. In Christ alone, His love, the love of God, the true justice given through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. And if you don't have that, in one sense... And hear me, please. It will be a just day on that day when you try to claim your own righteousness and you will receive what we all deserve. Will you turn to Jesus Christ? Will you receive his justice and mercy at the cross? The love of God poured out on the disadvantaged in Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, God, may that be a call that someone clings to today. May you open the eyes of someone here to see that they will not get beyond this life by way of their own righteousness and their own standard. I pray that you will grant mercy to the one that has been putting you off, that has been turning away from you. I pray that you would pry open the heart of the rebel. I pray that you would reach down low and convict and strip open the heart of the one that has been denying you. God, open the hearts of those that are not in right relationship to you. Let them see not false standards of the world, but God, please let them see this. The love of God poured out for the disadvantaged in Jesus Christ. God, have mercy on these souls. God, have mercy on us as we look to live out your justice, your righteousness in Christ. Amen.